Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I'm on the pastoral staff here. And again, this is your first Sunday. We're really glad that you could join us today. Uh, just know for all of our members, we are going through another round of membership. And the members this time around, they're actually meeting in the mornings at 9.30. So it's been awesome seeing them together, gathering in the mornings. We have about over like 20 people who are doing membership this round as well. Who knows, maybe only 10 of them will get through. We will see how what happens. But at the same time, we're really encouraged by those who are participating in that. And we look forward to this another round of membership. And so with that being said, this is your first Sunday here. We've been going through a series called The Journey of Faith. And we've been looking at different passages uh, that kind of describe what we feel like is the Christian journey of how we grow and walk with Christ. The theory, it's just a theory. It's not something that we say all Christians need to subscribe to, but there is elements of these different stages that we feel you do find it in the story of the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, we're actually looking at a story that's really well known, especially if you grew up in the church. It comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. It's also in your program. And here at our church, we believe that when we read the scripture, God is speaking because he's alive and he's with us. So can we all rise together as we read from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. So in verse 38, it writes, while they were traveling, he, referring to Jesus, entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, would your spirit come form and shape us, stir in our hearts the way that we need to be formed. We're all in different places, and so would you speak to us individually where we're at, and also communally as a church. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Back when I went to seminary, one of my favorite professors at seminary, his name was Mick Borsma. And Mick Borsma, he was like that classic older gentleman. He was 70 years old. Think if you ever read Tuesdays with Maury, I just imagine that's what Maury would look like. He is uh, Mick Borsma. And he had like decades of pastoral experience. And the reason why Mick Borsma was one of my favorite seminary professors, it wasn't because of his theological knowledge. Although he was very theologically knowledgeable, he had a PhD. You would never know it though talking to him. He was really, it wasn't because he was gifted either. His classes were great, but that's not what drew me to him. It's not even because I was even close to him. It's not like we had like a really close relationship. It was just when I would observe him in his class, like his character was just outstanding. Like it was so rare to meet somebody like him. Like every day when I walked into his classroom, he was just like smiling, joyful, like, good morning, Thomas. I've taught in education before. Like I was not smiling every day for my students. But he was like always smiling, this 70-year-old man. He was very hospitable. He was the only professor where he invited the whole class into his home. So I remember eating in his living room and just being, meeting his wife and seeing his home in the area. Super gracious. He's kind of old school, so sometimes you know, he was teaching like, how to do church, and some like, young student would like, challenge him going, that's so old school, that's not how things are. And we're all like, ooh. And Borisman just has a huge smile on his face going, oh, so what do you think? Like, what's, up, what's some new ways that people do church? Like, so gracious to, like, these students who were talking to him. And he was super humble. Like, one of the most humble guys that I've met. And I remember his humility showed where we had this thing called chapel. 
at the seminary I went to. And chapel was like this midweek where all the grad students and seminarians, we'd come and it'd be like a worship service in the morning and they'd have either a well-known preacher come and preach a message or they'd have one of the professors who'd come and preach a message. But I remember one chapel, it was like one of the students, like the grad students came who went and preached the message. And I remember as soon as I saw that grad student come, I was like, okay, why did I come to chapel today? Like, this guy's going to fumble everything. This person, he's like my age. What does he know? And I remember I was just like, really just kind of like, whatevs. And you know, to be honest, the message was like so simple. I was like, yep, sounds like a grad student. But I remember Borsma, he was like sitting in front of me and like, he's old enough to be the student's grandfather. And he was just like sitting there listening intently. And he was writing down all these notes. I thought he was critiquing the person, but I just saw him taking notes down the sermon. Like, this is like, yeah, I should be joyful. I should rejoice in the Lord. I remember I was so like humbled by that. Like, wow, like Borsma, like he is the opposite of the grumpy old man. He is someone who's just like so Christ-like. In fact, he is someone when I was around him, I kind of wanted to be like him. I wanted to like have my life emulate his. In fact, I, as I was preparing a sermon, I haven't talked to him in like 15 years. That's the last time I was in seminary. So I just emailed him going, hey, you know, I did, I've thought about you. I don't know if you remember me, but I went to seminary back in the day and would love to grab coffee if you're willing. And he replied to me saying, Thomas, you live in Placentia, right? I totally remember you. I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is amazing. Like Mick Borsma, he is someone who, again, is just really rare, I think, to meet someone like him. How did this happen? Like, how do you become like him? I think this is where the journey of faith is really helpful for me to go through. It's not this automatic thing where as soon as the spirit enters into your heart, you become right away transformed. We believe that there's a journey that the Bible describes to bring you into becoming more and more like Jesus. We mentioned if you've been journeying with us, there's different stages and we describe six stages of the faith. The first one is oftentimes when people walk with Jesus, it's the recognition of God. This is usually a stage where you're just, it's defined by just awe and wonder that there's a God who made everything. Uh, oftentimes the people who are in this stage, you struggle with fear. Like why would, does God really love you? Does he know all the things you've done, all the sinful broken things about you? You're oftentimes attached to the world. Like you're a Christian, but you kind of do things that are really contrary to your faith. And a lot of us, we get stuck here unless you move to the second phase, which is uh, the life of discipleship. A life of discipleship, this is a stage where it's defined by learning. This is when you just really get deep into theology. You get deep into reading your Bible. You practice spiritual disciplines. The struggle, though, in this stage is oftentimes you could struggle with pride without knowing it. You could be very judgmental of Christians who are different from you. And the only way you can kind of break through that is you need to just interact with people, be around people who are different. And that leads to the third stage, which is the active life. And this is a stage that's defined by doing, relating to people, humbling yourself, serving others. If you keep at the stage, though, sometimes you might struggle with fatigue, with tiredness. You might be self-reliant, thinking you you have to do this, otherwise the church is going to fall apart. And oftentimes Christians, they are stuck in this stage, or they're looping back and forth to stages one to three, unless oftentimes God, he brings a crisis into your life. And when a crisis comes, that leads to stage four, this inward life. And we talked about this the past two weeks. This whole stage, it's all about vulnerability. Being vulnerable with God for the very first time. Be vulnerable with people for the first time. It's all about surrender, where you are surrendering your will. And what makes us stuck in not doing this is something we call the wall. There's something about you you just can't let go. 
And this is where a lot of us, we go back to stages one to three. And I feel like a lot of us, you know, I mentioned in the past, like we struggle here, a lot of Christians, because it's painful. It takes a lot of humility. But I also think the church makes it hard too. You know, the church, we love Christians who are in stages one to three. Like if you're serving, we're like, yeah, you're the man. You're like reading your Bible and praying like, dude, you're the man. We celebrate you. But if you're struggling with your faith, if you're questioning like, wait, I don't really know if I believe in all this stuff. We don't know what to do with you. We make it very simplistic. Like, oh, you're falling away, huh? Oh, you're, you're reading interesting people these days, huh? Oh, you're struggling with sin. That's what's going on. And that's kind of, and it's really interesting. Like when you kind of go through that, I think a lot of us who you're, when you're in that stage, you, you don't know what the church doesn't know how to minister to you. And I think this is where I really hope to comfort anyone who's kind of in that weird stage. The Bible, it says a different story than I think our experience. The Bible shows God, he often brings people into the wilderness where they're doing nothing. They're doing nothing in the wilderness, 10, 20 years. And yet that's like the season of deepest work that God is doing. You just see it all over the scriptures. It's painful, it's long, it's inactive, but some of us, you might be there and just know God might be doing a really deep work in you. What happens though, if you make it through the wilderness? What happens if God's able to help you break down your wall and you're just totally vulnerable and you're able just to surrender your will to the Lord? And that's where we would say there's, there's a, in the stage theory, there's a fifth stage called the journey outward. This is where you rediscover the beauty of the gospel. You rediscover the beauty of God where you don't, you don't just like know him and believe him and trust him, but there's this deep experience of God in your life. And when you experience God like this, it just radically transforms you. You become humble, you become patient, you become kind, a little bit less of an ego, less pride in you, more self-aware. Again, if someone critiques you, you're like, I already knew that about me. I'm actually worse than what you're saying about me. It's all good for you. You lose grips on your plans where even though you were hoping this would happen, you kind of let go a little bit because you know that God is God and you are not. In fact, if you're in this stage, you actually do a lot of stage one to three where you are still serving in your church, but one difference is you're not complaining anymore. You're not like, I'm so tired. Oh, I have to wake up. Like that's all gone because you know your limits. You know what not to do anymore. And you're just like, I'm all good. You're still reading your Bible. You're still praying stage two stuff, but it is not a duty anymore. It is not an obligation. It is like a delight for you. You enjoy just spending time with the Lord. And you're also experiencing stage one where there is this awe and wonder about God in your life, but it's not just a moment. It is like this continual thing every day. You just feel this delight in you. This should humble all of us if you think you're in stage five. Like this is a stage of just, again, if you like the term stage five, just think Christian maturity. Just think becoming more and more like Jesus. And the reason why people are become like this, it's not because of the crisis, but it's the, through the crisis you have opened yourself up to God and you are just experiencing his presence. Is there anywhere in scripture that shows what this looks like? To just experience the presence of God in our lives. And I think Luke chapter 10 is a nice, it's a nice story to look at. The story is a very famous story if you grew up in the church, especially if you serve in a ministry, the story of Mary and Martha. A lot of us heard the story to like encourage you to keep volunteering and don't burn out and so forth. Uh, but when you actually read the story of Mary and Martha, it's interesting. The story is not about serving, it's about discipleship. Because if you look at it where it's placed in the Gospel of Luke, right before the story, it, it's a story where it's a, a story of the Good Samaritan 
And then right after the story is the story of the Lord's Prayer. It's like, why did Luke arrange it this way? And the reason why is because Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. His disciples are following him. And as they're traveling, he's teaching them, come follow me. Let me teach you what it means to follow me. You know what it means to follow me? Love your neighbor, good Samaritan. You know what it means to follow me? Prayer, ask the Lord for your burdens. And right smack dab in the middle, we have the story of Mary and Martha. Why does Luke arrange it here? It's because to follow Jesus, not just love your neighbor, not just pray, but you need to fit, sit at Jesus' feet. You need to be able to experience God's presence. Or I like how one author put it. You need to practice the presence of God in your life if you really want to follow him. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at, in the story, there's one person in the story who struggles practicing the presence of God. And there's another person in the story that they are practicing the presence of God and it's very fascinating what happens to them. And I hope as we talk about this that this could be something for a lot of us that we just see as, man, this is what God's trying to transform you into. I think a lot of us here, we're really not here yet. We're not at that journey. We're not really being formed this way. But I hope this could really encourage you no matter where you're at, this is what God is awaiting for you. He's wanting you to be here, to experience his presence in this way. And so we're gonna talk about the story in two ways. Number one, why we struggle experiencing the presence of God, and then two, how can we experience the presence of God? So why we struggle, how we can experience. First, why do we struggle experiencing the presence of God? So the story begins where Jesus, he is traveling to Jerusalem with his disciples. And as he's traveling, he happens to stop by a village and he's welcomed into the home of Martha and Mary. Look at verse 38 with me if you look at the text. It says, while they're traveling, He entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now, this seems kind of random. Like, why does he go into this random village, and why does this lady Martha say, hey, come here, enter my home? And the reason why is because Jesus, he knows his family. He knows his family very well. It's like if I go to Torrance, or if I go to LA, I might hit one of you up because I just know you, and I happen to be around the town. That's what Jesus is doing here. He knows Martha. He knows Mary. In fact, he has a deep relationship with his family. He loves his family. If you're not familiar with these two sisters, they actually appear again where they have a brother named Lazarus, and Jesus had a really good relationship with Lazarus. That's the same Mary and Martha. And what's interesting, though, is as soon as Jesus enters into this home, look how Martha responds. In verse 40, look what it says. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. Jesus comes, she's distracted, and you know, why is Martha like running around doing all this stuff? And the reason why is because in the first century, it wasn't like she was just welcoming Jesus into her home. There was a cultural practice of hospitality that everybody was expected to do. The way you welcome somebody and the way you practice hospitality, that brings honor to your household. If I went to your home in the first century and I walk away going, dude, this person, they welcome me so well, you would get honor and clout upon you. It's like if, um, if, you're, if you had on Instagram, LeBron James followed you, going, LeBron James follows you, honor, clout upon you. That's how it was in the first century. You hosted a rabbi and he loved it there and was blessed, honor and clout upon her household. So that's why she was so frantic. Was she, was, had this, she had her honor and respectability of her household on the line as she was cleaning the home, as she was preparing a meal. And what's interesting is as she was doing this though, a couple of interesting observations we can make about Martha in this story. Notice that when Martha's doing all this and Jesus is observing it, he doesn't later on go, Martha, man, like yours. Thank you for honoring me. Like, thank you for this meal. That's not what Jesus says. In verse 41, look how he describes Martha. He describes her as, you are worried and upset about many things. 
That word worried, it literally means to be torn apart, to be pulled in different directions. The word upset, it's a metaphorical term for like a boat flipping upside down. So you're just kind of like going in circles, you're lost. And that's how Jesus, he sees Martha. Oh, you're doing a lot. You're working a lot. You're moving around a lot, but man, you're just leaking anxiety. You are leaking inner turmoil. And the reason why we can understand, there's a lot on the line on this dinner. Her honor and her household's on the line. And she feels that pressure. Notice also in the midst of this, who, that Martha, she gets upset. She gets mad at somebody. And all you older siblings, you can empathize. Oh, Mary, the little sister. I don't know if she's a little sister, but she probably is because that's how younger siblings are, right? Martha's running around, cleaning, cooking. And where's her sister? She ain't there. She's just in the living room. And so look what it says in verse 40. Martha says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. And again, a lot of us here, you look at that going, dude, that's right. Like, I had a sister like that. I had a brother like that. Like, what's her problem? By the way, I'm the youngest in my family. I was Mary. So that I, just, I empathize with Mary more. But a lot of you, you look at Martha going, dude, that's, yeah, that really sucks. And notice that Martha, she's not just upset with Mary. But notice she questions Jesus. Notice when she, how, who she's actually even talking to, verse 40. Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? Don't you see me doing this? Tell Mary to get over here and to help me. And when you look at the situation, you would think Jesus' heart would go out to Martha and be like, oh my gosh, like, Mary, go help your sister. I'm so sorry for taking your time. But that's not what Jesus says. Look at verse 41, what, what Jesus says. He goes, Martha, Martha. He uses the, the, her name twice because that's a sign of compassion and emotion. He's not like mad at Martha. He's sh- showing a lot of compassion. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus does not tell Martha, why are you doing all that stuff? That stuff is so stupid. Like, he doesn't rebuke Martha about the things that she is doing. He's rebuking her about the one thing she's not doing. She's missing the one thing necessary. Sometimes I'll tell my daughter to clean her room and it is fascinating five minutes later when I check in on what she's doing. Go clean her room, five minutes pass, I'll walk into her room and you know what she'll do? She'll go up to me going, look dad, I drew you a picture. I'm just like, oh, awesome. And she goes, oh, look dad, look at my bed. I rearranged the dolls where all like the Pokemons were up here. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And she'll, oh, look daddy, I learned a new dance. And she was showing me this super cute dance that she learned. I'm like, hon, that's, that's awesome. That's not what I asked you to do. I asked you to do one thing, just clean your room. All those other things are not bad. But daddy asked you, clean your room. And that's what Martha's doing right here. Martha's doing a lot of things, a lot of good things, but it's causing her to be anxious. It's causing her to feel frustrated with her close relationships, her sister. It's causing her to question Jesus. And it's because there's only one necessary thing that Martha needed to do, and she wasn't doing it. Can you identify with Martha? Many of you are like her, where you are loved by Jesus. You believe in the gospel that Jesus, he died for you and he loves you and he's with you and you welcome him into your life and yet you are so distracted by many things because, and it's causing you to neglect the one thing that is necessary. You're overwhelmed with school. It's just a crazy season at school or you're busy at work, this busy season where, man, it's just really hard this upcoming year 
or you're tired because your kids are ages one to two and it's just really tiring caring for babies in this way, or you're frazzled because of travel plans or holiday plans. And so the result is you just have no space to sit at Jesus' feet. It's just a really busy season, even though it's the one thing you need to do. It's the one necessary thing. But you know the lie we all tell ourselves? It's the same lie I tell myself. It's a season, a busy season. I just need to wait for this season to be done. Biggest lie you are telling yourself. Karen Newoff, he's an author. I like the way he summarizes this on the screen. He says this, quote, seasons have beginnings and endings. If your busy season has no ending, it's not a season. It's your life. And that's a lot of you. You have a busy season that lasts forever. And you know how this is you? It's because you are experiencing the same symptoms that Martha has in this story. You are, for some reason, always low-key anxious and worried. There's this low-key anxiousness and worriedness in you and this inner turmoil that's just kind of pulling you apart because there's so many things that are non-negotiables to you. There are so many necessary things in your life that you have to take care of. And so you're just pulled apart. Or some of you, you're just really frustrated with people these days, like people who are close to you, because they are not accommodating to the lifestyle that you want. It could be your coworkers, they're not keeping up with their end meet, their ends meet. It could be your spouse, where they're not taking care of the chores like you're supposed to. It could be your kids interrupting your time, and you're just exasperated because they are not fitting in your perfect world. Or it could be sometimes you're just questioning, does God even care? Like, does God even care about my life? Because if he did, why is he allowing this crisis to happen? Why doesn't he change my circumstances? Why doesn't he get the Marys in your life to get their act together and change them so they could help you out? And I think if you're in that boat where you're just exasperated, tired, frustrated, questioning, I truly believe the story tells us that if Jesus looked at you, he would look at you and say, Thomas, Thomas, Sam Bay, Sam Bay, Daniel Shim, Daniel Shim, Lena, Lena, Tim, Tim, you are distracted by many things right now but you're missing the one thing you need. There's only one thing you need. The one thing you need is you need to sit at my feet. You need to be in my presence. That's the one non-negotiable that you need. And that's the one thing you're not doing. That's the one thing that's consistently missing in your life. And that's why you're falling apart. That's why you're frazzled. That's why you're frustrated. Because you need the one necessary thing. Are you distracted like Martha? Are you neglecting the one thing necessary? A word to our members. You know I message you members all the time, right? If you're a member, you know. I message, I pray for you guys. I message you guys. I ask how you're doing. And it's always really consistent. There's some of you, you're doing well. Some of you have ups and downs. There's some of you, though, like it's been three years where it's the same thing. Like, oh, your spirit's not doing well. Like you tell me the same thing. Like, I'm just not spiritually doing well these days. I haven't been reading. I haven't been going to church. I, I feel like I'm losing my temper all the time. And dude, I totally get it. But you got to do something about that. Like you got to, something has to shift. You're, you're not going to last long if you keep that up. You know what the definition of insanity is, right? That people say, doing the same thing over and over again and thinking that there'll be a different outcome. That's insanity, and that's why God sometimes has to break you out of your insanity, where he brings a crisis into your life to wake you up because you are falling apart. You're not letting go and making space for God in your life. And it's not until something happens that you start to pay attention because you're distracted by many things. 
A lot of good things, but it's causing you to miss out and not pay attention to the one necessary thing. Are you like Martha? How can we shift that? How can that change? And I think that leads to the second point. How can we experience the presence of God? So here's Martha running around, distracted, all good things. And here's Mary, Sister Mary, just sitting at Jesus' feet. Look at what it says in verse 39. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he had said. Now, when you look at this story or this part, this character, Mary, some of us, are, again, are tempted to judge her. Like, why is she doing anything for, like, to help her sister? But Jesus commends her. He commends her for Mary for what she's doing. Why? And I think there's a couple observations that we should make that helps us understand why Jesus affirms her. Notice that Mary, she's actually going against all the cultural norms of her day by sitting at Jesus' feet. Back in the first century, a woman was not allowed to go near a rabbi's feet. In fact, a woman was not allowed to have a rabbi. They were not allowed to be taught by a rabbi. Back in the first century, you know where she should have been in that moment? In the kitchen with her sister Martha. That was the cultural expectation. Very triggering, I know, for a lot of ladies here, but that's the way it was back in first century Jewish culture. You were meant to be in the kitchen as a woman. And so imagine the scenario. Jesus is a rabbi. He's with his disciples. He's teaching them. There's like all these men here. And here comes Mary, just walks and sits right with them to sit at Jesus' feet against all cultural norms in that moment. Fascinating. Notice also the setting of where Mary is experiencing Jesus and sitting at his feet. This does not take place on a mountaintop where all of a sudden this transfiguration happens going, oh my gosh, Jesus. Or it's not like this healing's taking place and she's like, oh my gosh, Jesus. Where is this taking place? The most common area of a person's life, their living room, in their home. And it's not even like during a religious holiday. It's not like it's a Sabbath day. It's not like it's Christmas season or, or a, a Passover. They didn't have Christmas back then. It was Passover. What was happening? The most normal occasion, just cooking a meal. And here was Mary experiencing Jesus' presence, sitting at his feet. And notice how Jesus commends her. Uh, the, in verse 42, it says, Mary made the right choice. This is where I wish we had a CSV translation. We should go back to the ESV, because this is actually a figure of speech. The ESV actually translates it like this. It says, Mary has chosen the good portion. Meaning, Mary, you chose the good dish. You're eating the good meal right now. My wife and I, whenever we go to new restaurants, man, like I always order something that's familiar to me. Like if I go to a new breakfast joint, I'm like, uh, Eggs Benedict, the most plain Eggs Benedict there, because I love just familiarity. My wife, she has this insane gift where she knows how to read the menu and she goes, I'll choose like the weirdest dish. And I remember the waiter, whenever I order, he always goes, Very good. When my wife orders, he always goes, Excellent choice. I'm like, Dude, what the heck? Like, what about, about my choice? And it's not until the dishes come out, I'm like, oh, I know why the waiter said that. My wife just chooses the best dishes. It's like the be- of all the menu items, like she chose the best dish. She walks away from that restaurant most satisfied. And Jesus, he's saying the same thing to Mary. You've had, you have many choices you could have done right now. You could have just been in the kitchen. You could have been shy and not sit with the men. But the fact that you came here and sat down and learned from me, sat at my feet, you chose the best dish you're going to walk away the most satisfied in this evening. See, Martha and Mary, they both loved Jesus and they were both loved by Jesus. There's no difference there. But only Mary experienced the presence of Jesus 
because she sat at his feet. And you see the results. Martha's anxious, flustered, questioning. Versus Mary, notice this sense of just like peace about Mary in the story. There's no worries how the men are going to view her. She's the only woman sitting with men. There's no mention of her feeling self-conscious about that, even though that's culturally just out of, like, that's insane. Why would she do that? No mention of that whatsoever. Notice Martha is just, like, talking trash about Mary to Jesus. Mary's silent the whole time. It's almost like if I could fill in the blank, it's all good. My sister always does that. It's all good. Even though there's a mess, there's a lot to do, Mary's just chill. It's all good. I'd just rather be in the presence of Jesus. And I almost would argue this is what stage five looks like. This is this peace, this calm, this sense of being loved and secure because you are in the presence of Christ. How do you experience this today? How do people in stage five experience sitting at Jesus' feet? I argue a couple of things. When you're in stage five or you're spiritually mature or you just walk with Jesus for a long time, you're like Mary where you go against the cultural norms to be in the presence of God. You rearrange your life for the one necessary thing. I have a friend, he like is obsessed with running. Like he will run because he just needs exercise. Like he like has this passion for running. So he'll run every day in his life. Every morning he wakes up early to run before work. I remember one time I traveled with him. In the morning, he's just gone. Because even when we traveled, he was running. I remember he went to our church retreat. In the morning, he's running around the church retreat. He just runs every single day. Doesn't matter where he's at, because for him, that is the one necessary thing. He must run. He will rearrange his entire schedule just to make sure that he could run. And it's not even that much to rearrange. It's just like his mornings. And he runs. And all of us were just like, that's weird. Like, who does that? Like, when I'm on vacation, that's like an excuse not to exercise. Like, that's the one reason I don't have to run. But he makes it a point because this is the one necessary thing in his life. And I think that's the big difference between stages one to four and stage five. Stage one to four, you follow Jesus so long as it doesn't disrupt your schedule. Once your schedule gets too crazy, ah, I don't have time for that. But stage five people, people who are spiritually mature, you rearrange your life for Jesus, for that one thing. Because again, you have a lot of things you could do. It's really easy to make an excuse. But for people who tasted and seen the goodness of God, he is the one thing that's necessary in your life. Stage five people, not only do they go against the cultural norms like Mary, but also they experience the presence of God like her, where it's not in these mountaintops only, but it's all the time. It's all the time. Some of you here, you experience the presence of God when you're overseas on mission trips, when you're at a retreat, when you're at church on Sundays, or even like those five, 10 minutes in the mornings where you spend in your quiet times, you're like, okay, God's here. The people on stage five, they experience God's presence all the time. He's always present. There, it's what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament where he describes pray without ceasing. What does he mean to pray without ceasing? I don't think he means be on your knees all day. And nor do I think he's just saying some exaggerative statement. Pray without ceasing, it's this awareness of God's presence all the time without ceasing. There's actually a term for this. It's called simultaneity. It's on the screen. Simultaneity, what that means is the ability to be engaged with two things at the same time. And people who just sense God's presence all the time while they're doing all their activities, this is simultaneity. And let me give you an example of what this looks like. Uh, I watch movies with my wife all the time. And whenever I'm watching a movie with my wife, like I'll watch a movie. And as we're watching, I'm paying attention. And when a good scene happens, I look at my wife going, oh yeah, like, did you see that? 
When there's a sad scene that happens, I always look at my wife to see, is she crying? Is it making her cry? Oh, she's crying. And I just, I'm just aware of a sad scene. When there's an inappropriate scene, for some reason, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't make the movie, but I'm just apologetic. I'm like, I'm sorry that there's a scene that we're watching. What's going on? I'm watching something. I'm doing something. I am aware of my wife's presence the entire time. That's what people who experience the presence of God all the time are doing. They're doing their normal thing. They're just aware of God's presence. And they're very intentional about it. When you do the daily mundane task every single day, going through your schedule, breath prayers, Lord, be with me. Lord, be with me. Lord, you're here. Just these quick breath prayers throughout the day. When they're worrying about things and they just catch themselves worrying, they turn that worry into a prayer. I'm just, tomorrow's so crazy, Lord, be with me. And they just transform that in that moment into a prayer. When they're hiking or at the beach, they don't just see the beach or they don't just see trees, but they see the beauty of God's creation. They go, God, you are totally beautiful. You see your, your beauty's everywhere. When they see the news and they see how terrible the world is, they're reminded that but God is on his throne. God's just everywhere to them. When they're walking and they, people come into their minds, they can't help but just pray for them because they're, they're burdened by these people. This is seeing God on every occasion, all of life. And not only that, but when you experience stage five, just like Mary, your time with God, it's not a duty. It's not an obligation. It is the best dish. It's the best part of your day. For a lot of us here, when you read your Bible, when you pray, like you have to do it. It's a burden. And I hope don't feel bad about that. That's normal. We're not used to spiritual things. We are physical beings who live in the world for such a long time. Sin, whatever it might be, that's just kind of doling your palate. It is natural for it to feel boring. But when you just taste and see the goodness of God, it becomes the highlight of your day to sit with him. I read biographies of guys like Martin Luther, George Mueller, Charles Spurgeon, and I'm so fascinated. They prayed for like two hours, sometimes four hours in the morning. I'm like, who does that? Like, what do you actually do for two hours? And I've, I used to think like, man, they must be like so tired. They must be like, you know, spit in their corner mouth because they're just like praying all the time. But I come to discover they're actually not talking the whole time because we're confusing prayer with like intercessory prayer where you're just talking. Spurgeon on them, they're just like sitting in the presence of God enjoying that time. It's not a duty to them. It is a delight. And that's why it lasts for two hours. They almost don't want to leave. Have you ever experienced God like that? Have you experienced like, this is the highlight of my day. This 10 minutes, this 20 minutes in the word, in prayer, in silence and solitude. That's what stage five is like. You delight in this. And it doesn't happen automatically. When I was a kid, I used to hate hate Mexican food. I know it's, it's like sacrilegious, blasphemous in California. But I used to like, man, like just give me mac and cheese. Like I just want like the most simple dish because that's like my child palate. But my parents, they didn't care. They're just like, we bought it, you eat it. And so we ate it all the time. Now I like love Mexican food. It is like the best when I eat it. What happened? The palate just changed. It developed. And when you keep eating something that's good, you will taste and see it is good. And that's how it is with the Lord. Yeah, it's, it's rough sometimes for some of you to experience his presence. But taste and see. Keep tasting and seeing. See your palate change. See yourself delighting in him. And that's what people who delight in the Lord are experiencing. They just delight where this is the best part of their day. And what's really interesting is that when you're experiencing this type of relationship with God, you're not just experiencing his presence in the good times, but when the bad times come, 
oh man, those moments, you're not drawing away from God, but there's like a different level that gets unlocked. You know, Luke chapter 10, this is not the only story in the Bible where Jesus visits Mary and Martha. You know, he visits them again. It's in the gospel of John. Jesus goes back to this town. He visits Mary and Martha, but this time it's not a random visit. When he visits Mary and Martha in the gospel of John, he's visiting because something tragic happened. Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus passed away. And it's really fascinating is when Jesus goes and visits Mary and Martha after Lazarus dies, he encounters Martha and Mary individually one at a time. And it's very fascinating how he interacts with them. So in John chapter 11, verse 20, look at how he interacts with Martha. It's on the screen. It says this. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet with him. But Mary remained seated in the house. (laughs) Typical Mary, right? Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha approaches Jesus. She's lamenting, weeping over her, or worried about her brother, sad about her brother. But she makes this truth claim, like, but if, you know, you're going to make things right. And how does Jesus respond? He gives this theological answer. Look at verses 23, 24 in chapter 11. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Jesus told her, Jesus told her and Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Again, great. Tells her a promise. She believes in the promise. Awesome. That's Martha. And yet Mary, she comes next and she goes to Jesus and she says something very similar to Jesus in a different way. Look at verse 32. As soon as Mary came to see where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's saying the exact same phrase as Martha with one difference. She falls to his feet. She's emotional. She's vulnerable right now. And it's very fascinating how Jesus responds. Look at verse 33, 35. It says on the screen, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. This is a difference, I think, between Martha and Mary on how you experience Jesus. It's similar to how you have stages four and the four people and stage five people experience Jesus. Martha, she was comforted by the truth of the gospel, the good news that there is brokenness, there is death, there is sin, but there is a God who's going to do something about this and he sends Jesus to take care of it. Martha believes in that truth. She is comforted by that truth and she hopes for a future promise. Mary, though, she doesn't just know that truth. She experiences the gospel. She experiences Jesus' presence. She doesn't just know that God's going to have a plan and do something about it, but she experiences God weeping with her. He weeps with Mary. She senses his presence. And when you experience that with God, like something just happens to that relationship with him. I remember I had a friend who, you know, we're just like buddies, hang out, surface level, cliche, facts, opinions. That was like the nature of our relationship. And I remember there was like a season where I was going through a pretty hard time. It was one of like my wall moments. And I'll never forget, like I was sharing with him and, you know, I was just like, hey man, can I just share like my burdens with you? He's like, yeah, sure. And I was just like sharing like all my burdens, how like hard it's been and how rough life was. I remember like he was quiet and I was just like, why is he not responding? I looked and he was like crying. And I was like, dude, you're like, you don't, what's going on here? Like, why is he crying? But he was like, dude, like, 
that sounds really hard. Like, I'm so sorry you're going through that right now. And I don't know what happened, but, you know, I'm so emotionally healthy. I just, you know, stood there. I didn't really, like, do anything emotional. But I just sensed, like, this deep care in that moment that no word of advice, that no, you got, you got this man would have helped. Just, like, this deep sense of, like, this brother loves me. The fact that he would weep with me, even when I'm not even weeping, but the fact that I just open up a little bit, man, did I open up this new level in our relationship to the point where now whenever I'm going through some tough stuff, he's a brother I go to. Because I know like, man, this guy, is, he's, he cares for me. And for a lot of us here, I think our relationship with God, it feels so far because you have not felt him weeping with you. But the gospel tells us that we have a God. He knows your pain. He knows your tears. He knows your burden. And we know that because at the cross, he took it all upon himself. He knows the consequences of that. And he wants you to experience him weeping with you. And until you experience him weeping with you like that, he's always going to feel a little bit distant. And we're always going to know a lot about God, but we're never going to know who he really is and experience his love because he is a gentle, lowly, compassionate father to you. And so do you experience God this way? A God who weeps. A God who wants and invites you to come. Let that part of yourself open to him so you could feel in the darkest parts of your soul his loving presence. Someone once asked me, man, is the only way you could experience this through a crisis? Like, is the only way you could experience like stage five or whatever you want to call it a crisis in your faith? Like some tragedy has to happen? And just know from what everything I read, I don't think so. No, you could, you could experience it now. Come before the Lord. Open your heart to him. Be vulnerable with him. But the problem is we're too distracted by many things. We're too busy with our anxiety, with our stress, with our job, with our relationship. But just know that you have access to this if you are in Christ Jesus. The spirit of God is in you. You can sense his presence tomorrow if you wanted to but it is up to you to decide and make that choice. Do you choose to sit at his feet? Because he is waiting to come and meet with you. Let me close with this. When I was younger as a Christian, I'd read these books called like Radical or Crazy Love. And I'd read these passages that say, to live is Christ and to die is gain, man. I'd be like, yeah. And inside I'm like, nah, like not really. Because, you know, I I didn't really believe that fully. I, I believe in Jesus, but to that extent, and I, remember, I just had to fake it at church. Like, yeah, radical, man. Like, I just had to pretend. And I feel like for a lot of us here, you read these like crazy Christian statements that are all true, but we feel like that's just like a ideal. Like, that's just something that really holy people do. But I really want our church to normalize. Normalize, we're all in different places. Some of you, yeah, you're a radical, man. And some of you are like, mm-mm. I don't know what you're talking about. I could, I could barely go to church on Sundays. I hope we can normalize that we're all in different places. But I also, also would hope we can normalize, move forward. Don't stay where you're at. I'm spiritually dry. Dude, I get it. You got to move forward. I haven't read my Bible in a long time. Dude, I get it. You got to move forward. I'm losing my temper on my wife and my kids all the time. I get it. How do you move forward? You got to move forward. And most importantly, you can move forward. Not because I trust you, but the spirit of God is in you. 
and the spirit of God's in you, God wants to move you forward. You can change. You can mature. You don't have to stay anxious. You don't have to stay depressed. He wants to move you forward. He wants to form you, but your choice is, are you going to sit at his feet and allow him to do the deep work in your soul so that you can be aware of how God wants to move you? And so as I invite the praise team, can I just lift up a word of prayer for our entire congregation? And then we're going to just take a moment to begin now, come before his feet and take a little bit of time to pray together as a congregation. But let me pray for us first before we have space to pray.